you this morning, would you open them please to the book of Ephesians. We continue in a sermon series that we began some weeks ago. The words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to a church by the name of Ephesus that existed many, many years ago. The words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to Miles Road Baptist Church today. The truth of yesterday is the truth of today. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to focus on verse 4. If you're a lady, if you're a wife, if you're a mother, if you're a grandmother, I'm giving you a break today. That doesn't mean I want you to check out. I want you to listen because you are vitally important. You are necessary. You are needful to pray for your man, to pray for your husband, to pray for your granddaddy, to pray for anyone that's male in your family that has influence or impact over young people. Your prayers could make a difference in what they're going to hear today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Grandfathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Uncles, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Wow. Paul once again is talking about relationships. In fact, that's all that he has on his mind as he's closing out this letter to the church of that day. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he talks about being spirit-filled, and he compares being filled with the Spirit to an alcoholic being filled with alcohol, the devil's brew. And just as alcohol affects how someone thinks and feels and talks and acts, it really affects their life. He says we should be spirit-filled. We who claim the name of Jesus ought to be so filled with the Spirit of the living God that we have the mind of Christ, we have the heart of Christ, we have the mouth of Christ, we have the body of Christ. We are, in fact, talking, walking models of that Christ. Because that is the only way that we can be worshipers as the Lord would have us to be. That's the only way that we can be husbands. You uh, wives can be wives as the Lord would have us to be. It's the only way we can be parents as the Lord would have us to be parents. That's why it's so important to be spirit-filled, because we are a people of relationships vertically and horizontally. Now, verse 4 once again. Paul is talking about relationships, but predominantly, primarily, the relationship of a father will also stretch it to a grandfather, to his children or his grandchildren. It seems like everywhere you go, somebody has a list, do they not? 
The late night talk shows, all them guys and gals have a list. Some of them even do a top ten. Everybody has a list. We have a list at our house called the grocery list. And we glimpse at it every now and then when we go out the door, so if somebody's going near a store or going into a store, they maybe can pick up these items. So in keeping with list, top ten list, grocery list, whatever list you might have, I came up with a list. My list is why it's good to be a man. Now, I want to go on record as saying I believe a man's better at being a man than a woman. And a woman's better at being a woman than being a man. So if you're a man or woman, be happy with who you are. Don't try to be somebody else, as some try to do. <laughs> so why is it good to be a man? Let me give you some reasons that I kind of come up with. Maybe you would agree. It's good to be a man because men understand ships and planes and tanks. We know all about war things. And if you're a man, that's a good thing. It's good to be a man because when you need to go to the bathroom, you can go by yourself. You don't need a posse. You don't need a support group. It's good to be a man. Because if you go to a social function or a church function and another man has your shirt and pants on, you can still be friends and hang around with him. It's good to be a man. Because all you need is one wallet, one pair of shoes, one belt, one color for all year. It's good to be a man. Because with one pocket knife, you can clean your ear and clean your nails at the same time. Good to be a man. Because when you got gray hair and wrinkles, they say you have characters and you're suave. It's good to be a man because you get to control the remote at your house. Good to be a man because you can leave the hotel bed unmade when you leave. Oh, there's some good benefits to being a man. Some advantages, some perks. But with all of that comes responsibility, man. And the biggest responsibility that a man will ever have in life is being the head of the home, the leader of the band, if you will. Moms are important, but whatever a dad is, pay attention, men, that's what the family is going to become. What the dad is in the present is what the family will become in the future. And when you have homes that are filled with dropout daddies, the seeds are being planted that one day are going to bear the crops of disaster. What a dad, what a granddaddy sows into his family is what the family will reap one day.
according to people who study the home. Listen to what they say. 75% of all homes in America have no father figure. The father is either gone, he's not there physically, or he is there physically, but he has mentally, emotionally checked himself out and he's totally disconnected with anything going on. Hasn't got a clue what's going on in his family. 75% of American homes are in that situation. Out there and sadly to say in here. And we wonder why our churches are so chaotic. We wonder why our nation is so chaotic. We wonder why the streets and society of America is so chaotic. It's because the dad, who's to be the head of the home, who's to be the leader of the band, is nowhere to be found. And the result is devastating. Homes without male figures will have unwedded, pregnant teenage girls skyrocket in number. Boys and teenage boys will be incarcerated in record numbers. The children and the grandchildren that come out of these homes where there's no dad present physically, mentally, emotionally, or in some cases all three, have a tendency to be filled with hatred. They're prone to violence. They're rebellious to authority. And they have no hope for this life or the life to come. This statistic I'm about to give you, I think, says it all. And I hope you men, you fathers, you grandfathers will listen to me. If you don't hear nothing else, listen to this. 26 of the last 27 mass shooters have come from homes that have no male figure present. 26 of the 27 homes of the mass shooters who go on a rampage of hatred, who mow down people right and left, sometimes by the tens, other times by the hundreds. They come out of homes where there's no daddy present, there's no granddaddy present, even if they are, they're passive, they're weak, they're gone, they're uninvolved, they're totally disconnected. I'm speaking to myself today as a dad and a granddaddy. I'm speaking to you that are dads and granddads. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying. And not just hear it, but do something with it. I want to give you some principles of what dads and granddaddies and uncles in some cases, some principles about how we can raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's what Paul says. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, to violence, but bring them up in the discipline, the nurture, and the admonition of the Lord. What does that mean in practicality? Well, first of all, it means we must love our children. 
Love is not giving them what they want. It's giving them what they need. What kind of love do children and grandchildren need, no matter their size, no matter their chronological age? What do children, grandchildren need? They need physical love. We're talking about love. They need physical love. I know some of us men have some kind of macho mindset that it's not manly to touch somebody. It's not manly to hug somebody. It's not manly to kiss somebody, even if that somebody is your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter. I'm telling you right now, girls particularly, need touch. They need hugs. They need kisses because that's where they get their affirmation as a person from. They get it from dad and granddaddy. And if dad and granddaddy won't give it to them, then they feel there's something wrong with themselves. And they go outside the home to find it. So, sir, you cannot give it to them they'll get it somewhere else. It's very important that we as men put our hands on our children and grandchildren and not just to discipline them, but to love them, to hug them, to kiss them. It's interesting in the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal comes back to the father after being out in the world, after living a foolish, wicked life, he comes back to the father. You know the story. And the father sees him coming. And the father runs out to meet that son who's coming home. And he slaps him upside the head and strangles him. Is that the story? Some of you going, no, that's not the story. Maybe I need to do the story. The Bible says... He met his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him. Multiple hugs, profusely kissed his son, who was now back. In the animal world, touch means acceptance among the animals, welcoming among the animals, belonging among the animals. And I'd like to suggest to you that when we touch children and grandchildren, we're communicating a message to them that they're welcome, they're wanted, they belong, they're valuable, they're important, they're accepted. So a father and a grandfather who's leading his children in the right way will be giving them physical love. But not just physical love, but verbal love. Sometimes the only words a child will ever hear from their father figure is something he screams at them, hollers at them, curses at them, calls them a name, belittles them. And some of you were raised maybe in that kind of environment. The only time dad ever said anything to you was to slap you upside the head and tell you you're no good. And I'm so sorry for that kind of father figure. Fathers need to be able to say to their children, I love you, I'm proud of you, your good job. 
We need to do that. If we're going to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we must give them love. Love can be physical love. It can be touch. It can be hugs. It can be kisses. It can be verbal love, affirmation that comes out of the mouth that you're special. It also can be spiritual love. To pray for our children and grandchildren as if everything depends on our prayers. I've quoted a song many times that the Kingsmen from Nashville, North Carolina, the old gospel Kingsmen used to sing, when mama prays, heaven pays attention. And I believe that. But I also believe this, when daddies pray, heaven pays attention. And too many daddies have delegated the spiritual work to moms. And thank God for moms who do it. But dads, we need to start wearing out our knees and not the seat of our britches too. By praying for our kids, by name, by need. The Bible says an effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. Love. Men, fathers, grandfathers, we must love our children. Secondly, we must not only love them, but we must lift them up. Colossians 3.21 tells us that we should not discourage our children. Lifting up implies two things. Praising them and encouraging them. Now I want you to pay attention. Many times we use the word praise and the word encourage as synonyms. They, they just kind of can be used both ways. But the two words are actually different. But children need both. What does it mean to praise your child? It means to be proud of what they accomplished. Proud of what they have accomplished, what they've achieved. Encouragement, pay attention, is to be proud of who they are whether they achieved anything or not, to encourage them because of who they are. Praise encourages them for what they've done. Encouragement encourages them for who they are. Suppose you had a, a son or a daughter who played football, or she was a cheerleader. Suppose they won the championship of their league. Wonder if, suppose the cheerleaders won the cheerleading competition. Well, you can praise them because they won the championship, your son or grandson. You can praise her because she was part of the cheerleading squad that won the trophy. That's praise. But you suppose... Your son or grandson played on a team that didn't win one single game. And she was a crummy cheerleader. Well, you may not be able to praise them for the achievement because there was no achievement. But you can encourage them because they did their very best. They didn't give up. You can encourage them for who they are as a person. Sometimes we can praise them for what they've accomplished. 
Other times we encourage them for who they are. Sometimes we can do both. But you lift up. You lift up. Pleasant words are like a honey sweet to the soul and healthy to the body, says the writer of Proverbs. We must lift up our children and grandchildren. We do that with praise, congratulations on what you've done. We do it with encouragement. We love who you are as a person. You may never win a championship, but we still love you. And we're proud of you because you played well and you played hard. Thirdly, dads and granddaddies, we must love our children, our grandchildren, if we're to raise them correctly. We must lift them up if we're to raise them correctly. But we also must limit them. Love them, lift them, but limit them. What do I mean by limit? I mean boundaries, restrictions, limitations, fences, rules, parameters, absolutes by which we have peace and order in their life and in our home. Where we prevent them from hurting themselves or somebody else. Where we teach them respect for authority. Where we teach them what is right from wrong. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him will discipline him often. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your children while there is still hope. 1 Samuel 3, 13, speaking of a father who was not worth his, a, a penny, says this of Eli, his sons were wicked, but he restrained them not. Gentlemen, it's our responsibility as head of the home, as the leader of the band, to make sure that we establish these limitations, these parameters, these guidelines by which our children or our grandchildren will operate under our roof. If I was to call you, sir, up here, put a microphone in front of you and ask you, what are the rules of your home in regard to your children and grandchildren? What would you tell me? Uh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, we're thinking about it. Maybe, uh, well, well. Uh. If you don't know what they are, how can you clearly articulate them to them? How can you concisely present them to them? How can you restate them over and over to them? Because children learn by repetition. I'll say this again for those of you who don't know this. I'm not senile yet. But I repeat myself frequently. You know why? Because you learn by repetition. If I say something 60 times, you're bound to learn it. You might get bored, you might be aggravated, you might even be insulted, but that's okay, you learn it. We as parents, we need to have clear limitations, we need to have concise limitations, we need to restate them continually, and we need to enforce them. Limitations, rules, parameters, fences, boundaries are absolutely a waste of time if they're not enforced. 
If you have no rules in your home, you're going to have anarchy, I promise you. If you have excessive rules in your home, you're going to have resentment and rebellion because your home will become a prison camp. If you have rules in your home but you don't enforce them, you will make a mockery of justice. And all of these things that are learned in the home translate to the school, translate to the church, translate to society, and translate to eternity. Are you listening to me? If a child is raised in a home where there's no rules, they will believe that anarchy is the way of life. They'll go to school and they'll conduct themselves as anarchists. They'll go into society and do the same thing. They'll do it on the job. They'll do it in the church. And yes, they'll do it in the prison because that's where they'll end up. If you make a bunch of rules, your home will become a prison camp and they will hate you for it. And they'll look for the quickest way out they can, whatever out means. And if you have rules in your home, but you do not enforce them, all you do is holler and scream and threat, you never carry out anything, they will be raised to believe that nobody's word means anything. I don't have to listen to the teacher. She's not going to do nothing anyway. My parents never did. I don't have to listen to the police officer or the judge. They don't mean what they say. My parents never did. I don't have to listen to Sam. I don't have to listen to Pastor Jim. All they do is run their mouth. They're not going to do nothing. I don't have to listen to God. All God does is sit up in heaven and make a bunch of rules. I ain't listening to him either, and he won't do nothing about it either. You see, what you teach in the home will affect them for the rest of their life when it comes to rules and regulations and boundaries limitations. All children need to have limitations. Who they can be with, where they can go, what they can do. And dad, you're the one to enforce it. It's not mom's responsibility. She is to support you. You're to be the man of the house and enforce it. We train our dogs, but we let our children run wild. We have rules for our games, but we have no rules for our children. How sad it is. How sad it is. And when I'm speaking of discipline, the enforcement of whatever rules you put in place and you explain to everybody so they know and you continually carry out if they don't do those things, that discipline can, has to vary from child to child. There's no set format. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all children were the same? They can't, you just push the button and they all came out. They all were the same. I mean, we've got seven grandchildren now. We have three sons. I can tell you it'd be wonderful as parents if they, if they were all the same. But they're not. They're all different. And, and the only way you're ever going to understand them is spend time with them. And in that spending time with them, you learn that all you got to do with some of them is stare. We've, we've got some of our grandchildren that all you got to do is give them a good look. And they'll snap right up. I mean, they, they behave. One in particular, she, that, she's, that's just who she is. She wants to please. 
And you look at her and she'll straighten right up if she was doing anything bad. The others, you could look at them till the, till the moon turns blue. <laughs> and your eyes bug out, but it probably wouldn't do no good. God would use other means like time out, taking them away from things. Or denial, taking things away from them. Sometimes corporal punishment's the only thing that works. And I'm not talking about child abuse, as our liberal friends like to call it. I'm not talking about doing it in anger. I believe God give us a tale for several reasons. And one of them is, is because the Board of Education can go right on that seat of learning. You can't break a tail. You might can bruise it, but you can't break it. And some of children only learn through that. But the point is, you have to have limitations. They have to be explained. They have to be enforced. And they have to be carried out in a way that that child understands he's not to do such. She's not to do such. Fourthly, of the five, we must love our children, physically, verbally, spiritually. We must lift our children up with praise and with encouragement. Praise for what they've done, encouragement for who they are. We must limit them. We must have boundaries in place that allow them to have structure, that guard them from themselves, that guard them from hurting other people that teach them authority, that teach them right from wrong. If they don't learn it in the home, they'll never learn it. And then we must lead them. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, that we train up a child. That word train up means to lead by demonstration. We like to lead by declaration, talk. But children don't learn with their ears. They learn with their eyes. They don't learn by declaration, talk. They learn by demonstration, walk. And what we do before our children's eyes means far more than what we do before their ears. Because in many times, not all times, but many times... Our children are replications of us, though we don't want to admit it. Many years ago, there were two little boys who wanted a dog. They went to their father and they asked him if he would help them get a dog. He said some cuss words at them, threw something at them, and told them if they want a dog, go steal one. Don't bother him. And so those two little boys, brothers, went next door to a man who had several dogs, and they stole the dog from him. They brought the dog home. Their father saw the dog and said, You boys are stupid. You know he's going to come over here looking for this dog. And he sees it, he's going to know it's his. You need to get some pain and painting. some paint in the barn, go get it and paint the dog. And those two little boys went and painted the dog's tail a different color. Sure enough, the next door neighbor came, asked the boys if they'd seen the dog. 
They said, no, sir, the dog came out around the corner. He said, that's my dog. They said, no, it ain't. His tail's not the right color. The man said, but he looks just like my dog. He comes to me. They said, he's not your dog. We got him in town. They stole. They deceived. They lied because that's what their daddy taught them to do. Those two boys were brothers, and they grew up learning from daddy how to rob, how to steal, and how to murder. You know who their names were? Frankie and Jesse James, two of the most notorious outlaws ever produced in the Old West. And how did they learn it's okay to steal? How did they learn it's okay to lie? How did they learn it's okay to deceive people and even murder people if they try to stop you from getting what you want? They learned it from Daddy. Think of the Harry Shapin song, Cats in the Cradle. Harry Shapin wasn't a Christian, but he was right on the money with that song when it came to the Christian outlook. His son, growing up, always wanted his daddy to spend time with him, and he said, no, I ain't got time. Then his boy grew up, and now he's an old man, and he says, son, why don't you come spend some time with me? And the son says, I don't have time, Dad. My boy was just like me, as the catch said. My boy was just like me. Sometimes dads, our children end up just like us, more than we would ever want to imagine. And then lastly, let's laugh with our children. Let's love them, let's lift them up, let's limit them, let's lead them. But let's laugh with them. What's your idea of heaven? If I asked you right now in one paragraph to tell me what heaven is like, what would you say? I know, Pastor, we'll have a harp, and we'll have wings, and we'll sit on a cloud, and we'll play. No, we won't. You see, many people don't understand if heaven is anything, it's a place of joy. Jesus is there, and he's the personification of joy. When Jesus was on earth as a man, do you know he laughed? Yeah, he laughed. Do you know he picked with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and they picked back at him? Do you know he loved to get together with them and they eat meals together? They told stories, they laughed, they sang, they, they danced, they just had fun. Somehow we've gotten our mind because they tell us out there that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a, involved in something that's dull and boring the rest of your life. That God is a cosmic killjoy. God wants nobody to have any fun. He's nothing but a heavenly party pooper who if you smile, he comes knocks the smile off your face. If you laugh, he scolds you. That's not true at all. And if heaven is a place of laughter, shouldn't our homes, dads, be a place of laughter? 
Laughter to a home is like sunshine is to a house, said a great poet of yesteryear. It brightens, it warms, it invites. When you go to a home that's dark, not a single light on, do you feel welcome there? If you go to a home and everybody looks like the Adams family, do you want to be there? Our church, for that matter. I think all of us like to be part of something where there's joy, where there's happiness, where there's laughter, where you can have fun. And that's what heaven is like. And, Dad, our homes ought to be a microcosm of heaven. Our children ought not to want to ever leave. They ought to keep wanting to come back and bring others with them. All of that requires time. You can't substitute time. And we dads and granddaddies need to slow down a little bit maybe and start putting some time into those that we say we love and we care about. The story is told of a little boy in closing who met his daddy at the door and said, Dad, how much do you make per hour at your job? And the dad said, why don't you go find something to do? Get out of here. I, I don't want to talk to you about that. It's none of your business. And the little boy teared up a little bit and he said, Dad, I, I really need to know. Dad, how much do you make an hour? And the dad said, I make $20 an hour. Now, would you get lost? Well, several minutes passed, maybe half hour, maybe an hour. And that dad sitting up in his chair, Mr. Gruff. And the little boy comes with a piggy bank. And he sits down next to his dad's feet and he empties out his little piggy bank. And he counts out his money. The dad looks at him and says, what in the world are you doing with your bank in here? Why'd you dump your money out? Pick that money up, take the bank back to your room. The little boy says, well, Dad, I, I want to give you something. Dad, I want to give you some money. The dad said, I don't need none of your money. The little boy said, Dad, I know you may not need it, but I want to give you $20. I'd like to buy an hour of your time. I'd like to buy an hour of your time, Dad. Would you put down the paper? Put down the phone? Just hold me and talk to me, Dad? I'll, I'll pay you, Dad. It's $20 for an hour of your time. I look over here at these children, these teens. I look out here at some of the others that we have. And I wonder what they're going to be like 20 years from now. That question is still being answered by you, sir, and me. My dads and granddaddies who still have a chance to make a difference. Now, I know some of you think I'm 
being trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not making you feel guilty at all. You can't change the past. You can't unscramble eggs that have been scrambled. You can't turn back water that's under the bridge. But what we can do is start over again. If there's anything I learned in the Christian life is our God is a God of multiple chances. I call him a God of 10,000 chances. 10,000 second chances. I like that. Now, last count, I've used 9,998 second chances. Now, you say, Pastor, you've only got two more left. You're right, I do, but then I'm going back to the bank of grace and mercy. And I'm going to cash another check and get me another 10,000. Every day can be a new day with the Lord. You can blow it, but the next day comes and we can do better. Gentlemen, we got to acknowledge that sometimes we're the problem here. If I've been around long enough to know this, I'll, I'll share it with you. Too many times we dads and moms like to blame everybody else for the monsters that we created and the monsters we can't control, and we expect somebody else to do it. We make the Frankenstein, then we expect Sam to fix Frankenstein, or Pastor Jim to fix Frankenstein, or a highway patrolman to fix Frankenstein, or the school teacher to fix Frankenstein, and we've created Frankenstein. We need to quit this blaming stuff and take a responsibility because teachers quick, boys and girls pick up real quick if we're not going to take responsibility. So we need to acknowledge the fact if our son is not where they need to be, our grandson is not where they need to be, our daughter is not where she needs to be, our granddaughter is not where she needs to be, and maybe it's because we haven't done things rightly and correctly. Maybe it needs to lie at our front door. Acknowledge you're part of the problem, sir. Because you checked out. You're not connected to your family. You could care less about it because it's too much aggravation and trouble for you to do. So much easier just to point a finger when the problem's yours. You made the monster, now you need to fix it. But you don't want to. You acknowledge, you start over again, ask God's forgiveness, ask God's grace, ask God's mercy to come into your life, and it will, by the way. And start over again. I know it's going to be hard starting over again because many times they've already lost respect for you. They've already lost love for you. But that doesn't deter you. You keep doing it. You stay the course, believing that as long as they're alive, God has a way of changing things. He can change you, He can change them, He can change both. This is an encouragement to some of you. Maybe you've blown it, but you don't have to live in the past. 
You can live in the present. Walk on in His forgiveness. Accept His grace and mercy. Trust in that grace and mercy towards your child or your grandchild. And start telling them you love them. Start lifting them up with words. Start trying to put parameters around them as much as you can. Age-appropriate parameters, disciplines. Start trying to teach them with how you do things, not how you talk about it. You want them to come to church, you come to church. If you don't want them to get involved in pot, put up your alcohol. If you want them to listen to you, are you listening to them? If you give rules, enforce the rules or don't give any rules. Stay the course. Heads are bowed.